cliffcentral.com. All right, all right, all right. It is um, Monday morning and we've started a brand new year and we've got loads of good stuff for you coming up in 2024. And we thought we'd start strong this morning and bring in Bronwyn Williams, uh, but Leanne and uh, Ryan and I are here to look after you through the rest of the day. And of course, there's plenty of good stuff coming up on cliffcentral.com a little bit later on. So Bronwyn Williams, in case you don't know, and she's been a guest on the show before, is a futurist, economist, strategist, trend analyst, an author, and a speaker. And I love her Twitter biography, which is hometown profit, but spelt P-R-O-F-I-T. And she does say puns intended, uh, intended futurist for money, economist for fun. And she's written this brilliant new book, which um, I was actually looking at over the holidays, which is why I thought we need to get her on. It's called Rescuing Our Republic. She's written it with uh, Ludwig Rahl. And it's about radical ideas on how to save South Africa from itself, which is just exactly what has come up in conversation a million times over the holidays. So, Bronwyn, it's really good to see you. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Very good. Were you about to do an Isted foot or something? You've got like a velvet curtain in the background. It looks like you're about to, uh, I don't know, do a, a, a Lord, Lord of the Dance uh, routine for us or something. <laughs> I'll spare you my I'll spare you my singer songwriter endeavors for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very good to have you on, and I can't think of a better way to start the new year than to start thinking about what the world and what South Africa are going to be obsessed with this year. I kind of did a soft intro by just saying that this is the year of multiple elections all over the world. It's a year where people will really have to decide their futures. The U.S. is obviously having their election; we're having ours. Russia's having theirs, not that we're expecting a hugely different result from what we expect every other year from Russia. Uh, India is going into an election too, and Modi looks strong there as well. And then there are a bunch of other countries. Congo just had their last election just before the holidays. And there are lots of countries, totaling more than half the world's population, that are going to be going to the polls. So clearly it's going to be a year for everybody on earth to make some important decisions. You think that's a good way to start? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that are up in the air. And I think the South Africans have felt this for quite a long time. A lot of us uh, came out of COVID thinking that like that would be the end of it and then life would go back to normal. But it's certainly not been that case. And certainly with our business clients, we definitely still see people as kind of still stuck in this pause mentality, waiting for things to get better, waiting for some sort of clarity or certainty before they decide to commit to invest in whatever new projects, new institution new piece of education everyone's kind of like waiting for things to get back to normal but i think that we need to get used to this sort of uncertainty and you have to kind of make your own future going forward right you have to sort of lean into the uncertainty and be someone who tries to tries to lean into the wind rather than waiting for things to settle down because that doesn't seem likely as i've kind of termed it this is the year where nihilism sort of switches into absurdism i think that like the election of the Argentinian president, for example, is quite a good sort of signal in that regard. There's also a whole lot of socio-cultural cues that sort of speak to that same sense that nothing makes sense, so why should we either? So expect a lot of the unexpected this year. But another way that I've kind of tried to frame the themes that I'm looking at for this year would be pirates and zombies, I think sort of sums up a lot of what's going on, which sounds quite extreme. But I claimed that title towards the end of last year, and I think it's already played out quite well on the pirate right, space. Explain, explain, just explain pirates and zombies to us. You've got to go slowly. I know you're thinking yeah. in the future. And sometimes you, you, you're you talking about the future. You've got to take us step by step here with you. As you said, many people, many people are still in a holding pattern and have been for the last two or three years. And I think everybody's desperate to shake that off now. But what do you mean by pirates and zombies? Yeah, that would be my way of sort of framing the themes for the for the year, year ahead. So we've got the sort of shift into the absurdism and then why not bring in some interesting characters? So pirates and zombies. Zombies is sort of a placeholder for a whole lot of what's going on in the, in the economy, but also coming even down to sort of drug-resistant fungi. I don't know if you know that, right? Even in KZN, we've had a case of drug-resistant ringworm, which sort of speaks uh -oh. to... On the more sort of fringy side of futurism, we're always kind of looking at bio threats and other threats. And, you know, we've all, the, the Last of Us was quite a big show over the last couple of years. Yes. These sorts of things, well, that's the, that's the sort of the more literal interpretation of the zombies, but the perhaps more important one is what's going on with the global economy, which, as I said, has shifted into 
full absurdism gear right now. I think that the sort of bellwether statistic that sort of speaks to the zombification of our economy at large at the moment is how in China they've built enough houses to house a third of the world's population that are now standing. In other words, they overbuilt that much property that's just sitting there vacant in order to prop up fake economic growth figures, right? China, and China, China, China. Like the, and because of that, those sorts of completely nuts figures do speak to a completely zombified economy, right? I mean, these are these sort of mm. economies like golems that are running around well, without we've much got, we've, got an, we've got an actual zombie in the White House at the moment who who he, he doesn't know <laughs> what he's just gone on holiday again. By the way, he he left for his for his eighty fifth holiday, and it's only just started in twenty twenty four. He he's. He was at work for, I think, three or four days and then needed another holiday. Joe Biden has taken more holidays, even if you don't believe he's senile and degenerate, which everybody who's got two eyes and, and, and a brain can see for themselves. Even if you don't believe that, let's say you're a diehard supporter, you, have to, you still have to explain why the guy has had more holidays than every other president almost put together. And I know he's very old, but there is a good... 80, whatever, however old he is, and there's a bad 80, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Zombies everywhere, but also zombie zombie companies too. I mean, a lot of the sort of mm. tides washing out and a lot of the easy money that was being floating around since COVID, there's a whole lot of companies that we've become to rely on that are really pricing below their actual market pricing point, right? So you've kind of had these sort of subsidized services and subsidized companies that have been propped up by easy VC money. Things like even the likes of yeah. Uber, for example, that we'd, we'd pay far below what the actual value of the services, as any sort of driver will tell you, right? There's a whole lot of these sorts of things. Whereas the sort of easy mm -hmm. money tide washes out, uh, you know, who's going to who's going to be left with, with their pants on when the, when the water comes, comes, comes out? But at the same time, Keep that absurdism sort of lens in. <laughs> I saw I saw a story um, over the weekend about how many new startups have failed in the last year or two, mm. as compared to you know before when when the world economy was in a slightly better state. I'm talking pre-COVID 2019, but it seems to me that a lot of venture capitalists are being very much more cautious than they've ever been, and that these startups, which were a dime a dozen, and you could have got you know, literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of investment are all falling apart left, right and center. The success rate for companies has dropped to an all time low. Yeah, well, it depends on your metrics for success, right? I mean, if you can keep it afloat and you can keep payroll going and keep shareholders happy by doing more acquisitions and by coming up with more projections, then you don't actually have to deliver. Whereas, you know, when the easy money washes out, then you kind of do start to have to start to deliver, right? So a lot of the things that look like growth on paper are really just shallow, empty, zombie sort of projects, right? So that's why the sort of zombification of our economy is definitely something to look at. The China example is just hugely extreme, but there's many companies that have benefited, as you said, from, from the sort of fake growth that we've seen, right? But it's all, it's all sort of zombie monsters underneath. Also, in terms of zombies, we can see what's going on with AI, which I do tend to think as being sort of zombie replications of sure. human interactions, right? So it's the sort of hollowing out of a lot of the things that we're doing. It's turning us into more zombified kind of consumers, right? The more we outsource our decision-making to machines, chatbots, algorithms, etc., the more we outsource our, our business choices to these sorts of platforms, the more kind of zombified we become. So it's sort of this autonomous commerce kind of economy that we're going into, autonomous chatbots, and not just chatbots, but actually like adversarial agents is the next phase we're going into there. That's where essentially you have bots selling to bots, right? So a person like you or I could have our own bots or our own AI that will go out and make a decision for us. Say we want to go on holiday and go and, go and shop for the best flight on our behalf. But at the same time, the companies selling you flights have their own agents that are now material. <laughs> They're trying to outprice you, right? It's, it's, I've seen just recently, in fact, last night I read an article on how um, some brands are setting up their own influencers online. They're setting up profiles for these fake influencers um, and you can basically control everything that they say and do um, and promote your product. And that's, I mean, that's a complete 180 from us wanting to have influencers <clears throat> as these real people who are really trying out your products and really giving them honest reviews. It's, it just, you know, defeats the whole object. 
And the other thing I saw this weekend was, um, you know, The Simpsons being well known for uh, <laughs> for looking into the future and predictions. Um, and we we know the escalator shot of Trump coming down and waving, and you know they predicted that he'd be president, which at the time seemed ridiculous. And uh, now what Homer's been doing while we've we have been watching is building an underground, um, you know, zombie hideaway or like a, a, a an apocalyptic um, tunnel underground for, to house his entire family. Um, and that's what people are saying is, could this this whole apocalyptic ending be in sight this year? <laughs> it's just yeah, crazy I mean to think. Well, well, the billionaires have been doing that for a while, right? So if you sort of follow the sort of fringes and the signals, in fact, it was one of the very first sort of trained pieces that I pitched to Dion, my business partner, back in the day when I was just starting out in this industry, was, was, was the whole thing of the billionaires, even then, like 10-ish years ago, already starting to dig bunkers out of pieces of rock in New Zealand and here in Africa too. Very interesting, right? Uh, huh. Mark Zuckerberg is famously building quite a fancy one right at the moment. He's got a bit of press for that. So he's spending, he's putting a significant percentage of his fortune into this sort of underground enclosed space, right? And, and there's kind of reasons for that. Uh, if we do look at what's happened again with AI and what's going on with the general geopolitical shifts, there are an awful lot of single agents, like one guys, that could push, push various singular red buttons and cause some pretty devastating chaos for all of us. So we've got a whole lot of rather questionable people in charge of nuclear codes all across the world. I mean, the nuclear warheads haven't gone away just because we've stopped panicking about it from the 1970s. Doesn't mean that threat has disappeared. But now we've also got the other really interesting threat that you could kind of ask ChatGPT how to create like a bioweapon in your garage using sort of chemicals you can get from pick and pay or builder's warehouse, right? <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. And this information is available to crazy people. Not all of us are crazy, but a fair amount of us are. I mean, what do they say? Like, I mean, like three out of every hundred people is a psychopath, right? I mean, like that well, I mean, great odds. When, when <laughs> you're put under under threat, and we saw normal people becoming crazy during COVID, um, yeah. <clears throat> bulk buying and that sort of thing. So there may only be three percent of people who are crazy, but when when placed under pressure, <laughs> that number you know, rises significantly. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's interesting times. I mean, if I was a billionaire, I'd probably also want to sort of hedge a little bit, just maybe have more yeah. bunker. Let's not forget, in the 1970s in America, this was pretty common. Like, these popped up in like movies and sitcoms, like families would have their little nuclear bunkers oh. in their backyard next to their swimming pool, right? <laughs> yeah, people people always, um, there are always gonna be like a fringe group of people, the preppers are still doing this. Uh, they did it before COVID. And obviously, when it comes to survival stuff, people do. And the richer you are, the better a plan you can make. I saw an interesting interview probably about two years ago about all these preppers and, you know, billionaires who are, who are doing these bunkers and things. And this guy reckoned, I can't remember who it was now. I'd love to give him credit. But he reckoned that even if you have billions and billions of dollars and you are spending a fortune on making sure that you have uh, all the, the amenities, all the supplies, fresh water, uh, guards, helicopters to get you to and fro. He still reckons because of the uh, indeterminate consequences of other people's human behavior, you wouldn't be able to last very long in that sort of situation, regardless of how much money you spend. So if it gets to the stage where we're all in that much trouble, it's tickets. There's no amount of money that will save you. I mean, that's a great example of a lot of the stuff I wrote about in the book, right? This whole idea that's, uh, you know, if, if you want to be safe, you kind of have to secure your environment and your society around you. You can't just rely on securing yourself. That was that's a, that comes up quite strongly there. You know, if, if we've learned anything from the COVID experience, it's that you cannot ever be safe. There's no such thing as safe. The, the, the default condition for humanity is that you're never going to be safe. There's always something that's trying to eat you, kill you, famine, war, natural disaster. And I'm not saying that you need to live your life in paranoia, but you also have to just accept that there are going to be difficulties to being a living mammal. And ultimately, death is the only certainty. And the sooner you just get over that and enjoy the moments that you do have as a living creature, the better your life will be. This, this pursuit of safety above mm. all, it's, it's going to drive you up the wall. Yeah, safetyism is hugely dangerous, especially from a political component. But I don't know if you're mm. aware, there's still people who are in voluntary lockdown from COVID. People who haven't gone out to a restaurant who still keep their kids what? in. 
Yeah, there's a whole community of people that they still haven't come out of the the cave since (laughs) since like you know February 2020. That's an awful long time. Like there's been children that have been kind of raised in these isolation bubbles. Now, of course, you can only do that in a zombie economy where you are the sort of beneficiary of other people's work that allow you to live without actually contributing to society in your little hovel. But that's a that's a sort of side point. These are very much rich communities. You don't you don't tend to find these these sorts of um, overly safe communities in places where you have to actually kind of work for a living, which mm-hmm. is where most of us live at the moment. Right. Well, I think that uh, that's a good place to to end the zombies. But what about the pirates? Let's talk a little bit about them because you mentioned the new president of uh, Argentina, who some people say is a pirate, but other people are saying, finally, here's a guy who's cutting a whole lot of zombie jobs out of the government. He may look like a lunatic and he may have the hair of and the behavior of a lunatic, but then that seems dirigeur at the moment. I mean, if you think about the fact that Britain had Boris Johnson, America had Donald Trump, we had Jacob Zuma. These are not serious people. Yeah, none of this makes sense. I mean, so you might as well be a little bit chaotic. So the sort of chaotic energy in politics is quite big at the moment. But in terms of the piracy angle, it's really a case of asking forgiveness if you need to or dealing with consequences later rather than asking for permission. And again, I think that was quite a prescient word choice, especially with what's happened in just the last few days in terms of quite literal piracy, the the absolute moral panic that's going on in America. And in fact, indeed, across the entire academic world at the moment around the sort of plagiarism issue at the moment. And that sort of brings up questions as to does copyright and patents and intellectual property law even make sense in a world where we have access to the world's information through, again, generative AI, right? And it's sort of really challenging a lot of that. And I certainly have issues from my more sort of economic background in terms of the how much inequality and unfairness in the world is based on artificial monopoly of intellectual property, right? I mean, like some of the people being accused of plagiarism, being accused from copying quotes from Wikipedia, like as though that's a credible source to start with, right? I mean, like the problems in academia go way deeper. But I think it's an interesting question to, to pose at the moment and also to pull at, especially in a very unequal society like South Africa. Well, I, 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 want, I want to stop you again. You, you, you run, you're so far ahead of the rest of us. So I'm just going to have to slow you down a little bit so we can catch up. You, you posted a a tweet, I think it's, or an X, whatever you call it now, real stupidity, real stupidity beats artificial intelligence every time. And you're quoting Pratchett, obviously, but what do you think that really means? Because I'm sick to death of having AI conversations with people who don't even have regular intelligence, let alone artificial. Well, well, at its essence, I mean, like that—that that quote's quite flippant. Obviously, he's a humorist, sure. but you know, like we have a lot of these conversations, and a lot of airtime is being taken up in very serious places around sort of singularity and. AI alignment, as they call it. In other mm-hmm. words, trying to make sure that the AI gods that we're building and believing in, because they become a god as soon as you believe in them, and many people do believe that they have godlike powers. So, ergo, they kind of do that. These right. things will become a sort of existential threats to humanity. And uh, my contention is that, like we spoke about just a minute ago, there's an awful lot of ways for us to to end this party without having to rely on AI at all, right? Like that, we're we're quite competent in creating our own problems. That we don't need to imagine problems from some sort of future artificially intelligent, godlike, omniscient being. So a lot of the debates are very theoretical around like AI developing consciousness or becoming having free will and agency. And a lot of serious people absolutely do believe this. But I would say that probably before we get to that point there, if we even get to that point, we'll be quite lucky given all the the sort of self-inflicted wounds we can impose upon ourselves along the way. I mean, there's a there's an interesting story that came up, and it was a big story in America, probably not so big here in South Africa, about Claudine Gay, who was the um, president of Harvard. And you talk about artificial intelligence, and I mean, what kid at school doesn't know that plagiarism is wrong? You know, if you steal someone else's work and you copy someone else's work, you can get expelled from school if you try to pass that off as your own. So everybody at high school anywhere in the world who's ever written anything longer than a page down knows that you can't do that. And yet the president of Harvard, who is also an example of the zombie stuff that you're talking about, just because she's black and a woman, was uh, celebrated by people who didn't bother to check what actual academic rigor she's brought to Harvard. And clearly all of her work is rubbish. And now she's had to resign, but largely also because of her testimony, her rubbish testimony in, uh, in Congress. 
uh, about you know like not stopping blatant anti-Semitism there. There's so much going on here that has to do with human stupidity as opposed to let's worry about the uh, the artificial intelligence when we've dealt with our own stupidity first, which is why I like that Pratchett quote. You know, this is yeah, supposedly. I mean, the president of Harvard's meant to be one of the smartest people in the world, right? You would think. Well, we don't need to talk about universities and how, how smart or stupid they are. They definitely, they're institutions designed to protect elite classes from the masses. I think one of my favorite sort of side yeah. um, side characters in that whole like Harvard issue going on at the moment is how a Harvard professor at a Harvard adjacent college that advertises itself as being saying we give our students actual Harvard degrees with the same academic rigor. It's just it's for part time students. She went mm -hmm. on Twitter and said or X and, and, and basically mocked her own students saying I, I might teach these people, but they're not the same as having a real Harvard degree. Right. So, you know, this whole idea that just pulling the curtain back, even though she's she's the one taking their money and she's the one teaching them and using the label to sign people up. She was still saying they weren't real Harvard students because they don't come from the sort of background that real Harvard students come from, which just sort of really rips the curtain back on these institutions and how they're all about sort of credentializing privilege rather than actually rewarding mm -hmm academic excellence or contribution to society like you can never be a real harvard graduate unless you did it full-time and your mommy and daddy had a nice sort of endowment that allows you to get there in the first place right Correct. there's a whole lot of hollowness in these in, in these in these institutions but again coming back to sort of the piracy angle and the, this whole idea of you know like copyrights and infringement and all the rest of it as much as you say that we understand that like plagiarism is wrong from an ethical sort of perspective, it's almost impossible to actually avoid in the real world. So whether you're a musician or whatever you are, it, all sort of human thought and creation builds upon other things. And one of my favorite examples of piracy in that regard is how there's a sort of project that's going on behind the scenes where people are trying to copyright every combination of musical notes so that <laughs> They can destroy the copyright industry of the musical monopolies that sort of determine the sort of the sound industry that we listen to on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. So they're going to copyright every permutation using AI, right? Because you can't do this manually. You can only do this. Because Doesn't you know this remind you of like cyber no squat? Doesn't this remind you of cyber squatters in the 1990s just buying up every domain that they could yeah. so that someday when someone wants, you know, whatever it is, .com, they'll have to pay you just for sitting there and doing nothing. Yeah, like the patent trolls is a huge thing, but this particular project is sort of to uh, poke fun at the copyright industry. So they're doing it. So they want to they want to copyright it and then public license it. So in other words, no music can be copyrighted going forward, right? Because they already would own it theoretically and they would have donated it to the public commons. So it just kind of shows that like if these things can be done, what do what do these laws even mean? And do they well, do they make sense going forward? I spoke to a copyright. And, and intellectual property lawyer a while ago. And I, he wants to remain nameless, so I'll protect him because he's still got a, a job and he's still got a business to, to cater to at the moment. But it's very, very difficult. And you say, mm. and quite rightly so, well nigh impossible. If you, if you copyright things and you make things uh, difficult for other people to access, then they're not going to access them. They won't be used. There's an argument for virality. There's an argument that people should just stop worrying about who owns it, uh, open source as much as possible, and you may not benefit immediately and financially, but the whole of humanity will. So it's almost like you're paying it forward, and maybe you'll get something on, on the back end. Uh, there's none of this this idea that you can, you know, I've I came up with this. This is all mine, and anyone else who tries to copy it for the next hundred years has to pay me money. It's a very old school way of doing things, isn't it, Bronwyn? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like the classic example, again, very fresh. This right now is the whole thing like Mickey Mouse is now out of the out of the copyright clause and into the public domain. So you can expect a whole lot of people um, using and abusing those sorts of characters going forward. But anyway, the idea of the, the ideas around copyrights and the fairness thereof is, I think, a topic that I will be looking at a bit more. And AI makes this almost impossible to defend because we we see therefore it's so much of this sort of um this harvard plagiarism thing the authors weren't even aware they were plagiarizing things i mean like if a 
the whole way that you write a thesis is ridiculous. If you can't want to get a PhD, you've got to write like 400 pages in order to get it published. And before you can even get to your own work, where you're actually contributing to the body of knowledge, you first have to sort of summarize everybody else's work, which everyone is doing. So of course, there's going to be overlap between one PhD and another, even if they weren't plagiarizing, it would still be flagged as plagiarism because you've got like this sort of moral panic around detail rather than about actual yeah. outcome. But I think the biggest right. sort of issue behind that is that so many of these artificial monopoly moats that are put in place by lawyers and then backed up by taxpayers are actually harmful to the very people who are paying to protect them. And I think the, the more significant ones there are around things like drug development, where we offer, where we sell patents or patent trolls sit on patents for useful things for humanity and then end up being able to rent, seek or charge however much they like because they have the sort of protection of the sort of patent law behind them, whether or not they're actually adding value or how long you should be able to sort of reap those rewards are questions up for grabs and people are constantly looking at ways around them that sort of angle of piracy is constant so things like diabetic drugs there's been some great sort of piracy mm. around that of people like i was talking about sort of biohacking in your bedroom using chat gpt to come up with bioweapons you can also use the likes of chat gpt to help you sort of biohack your own insulin drugs so you don't have to pay one of the big pharma companies huge monopoly rates in order to have the drugs you need to literally stay alive right so those sorts yeah. of asking for forgiveness rather than for permission things we see quite a lot of, but also in a very much more literal sense. I think I was quite right on the piracy thing. I don't know if you looked at national, international shipping routes at the moment. A whole oh lot my of God. Right. going oh, around I, Cape Peninsula. This, this is one of the few things that I did pay attention to. So a couple of days ago, there have been some some fights in the Red Sea with the Houthis, and they're, they're basically making shipping in that area impossible. Now, two-thirds of, two of, the, of the world's um, exports and imports and and container ships and oil and everything else goes through the Suez Canal. We know, remember when that ever, what was it called? The Everlast Evergreen, whatever it was that blocked the Suez Canal and mm -hmm. caused unbelief. What was it called? I don't Do remember. You remember? But we all know the picture, the boat that got yeah. stuck. Yeah. Well, the boat got stuck in but the Suez and it's going on. A, massive supply crisis all over the world the good news for south africa is that some of these ships will come past us and some of them might have to dock in cape town or in durban or in richards bay uh, but it's it adds an extra 14 to 18 days to every ship getting to where it needs to get so everyone in the world who's waiting for their consignment of x y or z and they're all trying to get their orders into china before the chinese new year which creates a bit of a break uh, that's going to set back huge amounts of business all over the world and massive supply problems. Um, and it's all because of actual pirates, actual pirates on ships with guns. <laughs> I'm the captain now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, there's also sort of like coups happening all over the place too that we don't necessarily know about. But yeah, exactly. There's like literal pirates in the in the sea that are disrupting global supply chains and they're going to make everything that you eat and buy more expensive for us here in South Africa mm -hmm. too. Like no matter where you are in the world. Unfortunately, our global economy is hyper interconnected. We do have a global economy, even as we have more and more fractured geopolitics, right? Our, in our economic interests are becoming more and more enmeshed, which is which is yes. really, really interesting. So you kind of got this like, watch what I do, don't listen to what I say, politics taking place. So, mm. so just don't believe any of them. Whereas as we've kind of established, basically all the world's leaders are a bunch of very strange and weird clowns with very strange and weird hair choices. Yeah. We clearly are not electing our best and bravest. We clearly got to the point where we're like, we might as well just try this because clearly nothing else is, is kind of working. So again, I think the absurd, absurdism of this year is going to be fun to all watch. Right. My favorite examples there would have to be the absurdism of how, do you remember last year when we had like prime energy drink that people went nuts for and were paying hundreds of rands for like a bottle of like energy, basically, but just like sugar water that was very popular. No. Now this year we've my got own, like- My own producer fell for that stuff. So mm. yeah. Has anyone fell for the Stanley mugs yet? The, the, the sort of, they, they bring out new colors, like kind of like La Crusade, but everyone went nuts for the pink one at the moment. This was the number one sort of Christmas no, gift. Not yet. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> It's coming here, like places like Target have had to limit people to one cup. There have been people that have stampeded like Starbucks stores in order to get them in America. It just, I, I like to look at those sorts of fringy things as much as they're not so relevant, or they do become relevant to us in South Africa too, because we're not uh, immune from mimetic bio and everything. But it's just, the, uh, uh, there's some people that are chasing down plastic mugs and prime energy drink and other people who are sort of 
literally trying to bring the world to its knees like pirates in the, in the Suez Canal, right? So, I mean, so we live in very, very strange times is what I'm saying. And that it's all too easy to get distracted and to be the more sort of zombie type consumer who gets distracted by the next consumer's toy you've got to chase after rather than sort of focusing, you know, like it's like, come look over here, come look at this new toy that you should buy and drink and whatever. Uh, don't don't look over there. Don't look at don't right. look at South Africa sending troops to the Congo. Don't look at the pirates in the Suez Canal. Don't look at don't look at what, what's going on behind the election scenes all over the world. Just 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 yeah, look focus at in my eyes. Focus on my eyes. Don't look at what my hands are doing. Um, Bronwyn, what about what about the the the, the book that you've written? I mean, it's it's very. This is a, a provocative title, rescuing our republic. It's not going to go down well with everybody, but you obviously are paying attention to trends here. So. Let's just focus at home for a second. South Africa has a big year ahead. I don't think anyone doubts that. You and I have spoken uh, privately also about what we foresee as the possible outcomes. There are political parties doing internal polling at the moment. We know the election's likely to take place probably sometime in May, which is just around the corner. Before we blink, it'll already be election time. But that isn't the only focus. There's other stuff that you focus on there, in particular our, our economic behavior and the things that we're doing right and the things that we're doing wrong. And the latter is a much longer list than the former. But give us some ideas of, of the stuff you unpack in the book. Yeah, so again, we could go back to good old Pratchett and the whole sort of, the whole book can be summed up with, even if it's not your fault, it is your responsibility to do sort of something going mm -hmm. forward. And I think that perhaps the most important chapter in the book was based on the conversation with Charles Savage from the Purple Group, who has, who's, who's yep. been, done wonderful things for the economy, but also gone to trouble lately for daring to actually charge for his services. Another interesting sort of economic point there as an aside. Mm -hmm. But essentially, like the, the Easy Equities platform was an interesting way to open up a conversation around how ownership can change behavior. And in that said, quite a literal sense, but also in a more figurative sense, right? So if you are invested in anything, whether it's a, a child, a company, a country, a piece of property, a business, a stock, a share, once you are literally invested in it, you have an incentive to see that thing succeed, right? Because now you've committed resources to it, you are invested and you are incentivized to make sure that, that thing, that person, that property prospers. And in order to do that, it becomes very quickly apparent that you also then are incentivized to invest in the community, the, the nation around that thing that you are invested in, because that's to your own best interest to protect your asset, your investment. Very simply, if you buy a property you are invested in making sure your neighbors also clean up their curb. That's a very sort of low rent example of this sort of topic. But at the same time, if you buy stocks and shares in a startup or in a JC listed company, you are now invested in seeing that business succeed. And in order for that business to succeed, well, you need a healthy economy, right? You need customers for the business that you've invested in. You need them also to be well paid and well fed so they can buy more of your services. This is how we sort of create virtuous cycles on a very sort of basic level by investing in more of what you want to see and by getting invested in anything really. But in order to do that, you have to actually democratize ownership by to use those sort of words like democratize. But that's one of the big challenges with countries like South Africa is that so few people are actually owners of the outcome of South Africa Inc. in our society, right? Yeah. Like if you don't have access to spare capital to invest in companies or to purchase your own house, then you're almost kind of based on the sort of natural human propensities towards things like envy and, and entropy that sort of d dictates society. If you're not invested, if you're not uh, uh, owning in success, or owning in dividends or owning in re good returns for your society around you, then you kind of almost incentivized, if you're not incentivized to destroy those who do own things uh, out of out of envy or some more negative emotions, you're certainly not incentivized to look beyond yourself if you not don't own a piece of, of the pie. So getting more people invested quite literally in owning the outcome of our country is one of the, the quickest ways to align people's incentives. So we're working together rather than working apart. And there's sort of a more subtle 
angle to this too in that i've spoken kind of about how those there's many people that don't own because they can't afford to own and then platforms like easy equities allow people to sort of own little fractions so they're doing good in that regard at least you have a, a route to that there's also another angle that comes from looking at more of the affluent people in our societies and how inadvertently so many of us who do have access to capital and to privilege and to be able to own things are choosing not to own pieces of our own community that we are living in and maybe want our children to to benefit from in the future then instead we're using that spare capital to hedge against south africa incorporated yeah now that's horrible i just want to i just want to point out because i think we had a, a big hand in this and so did the audience here at cliff central and we partnered with easy equities and with anthea gardner years ago we brought more people to the stock exchange in like a week than had ever been involved in the stock exchange all put together before then and it was quite quite a cool idea i'm i don't know about you but i'm also sick of people who complain that they don't own anything they don't have a role to play in in the future they feel disempowered they feel as if they don't really have a a, a function or a, or, a, or a meaning or a purpose to their lives. And yet, you don't have to own a massive global company and have the majority share in it to be able to have your say. Anyone can go to a, share meet, a shareholders meeting and say their say. There are activist shareholders online. There are people who own 0.0001% of a company and have an equal representation to people who might own 40% of the company when it comes to actually having a say. They might not have the same voting power, but this is something you can do right now. You could put five rand into you know, owning a company that you care about, and it means something. And, and rather, people will sit in the outsides and complain about it, like Julius Malema does and talk about white monopoly capital or any of that stuff. It's available to you. You just have to make the effort. Yeah, I mean, you can start really small, and that's, that's, the, that's something that's actually quite new to our generations. Like... I, I worked in the financial industry like 15 years ago. And at that stage, if you wanted to get invested in the JSE, you needed like at least 5,000 Rand in, to, to make any one investment. Otherwise, your returns were so eaten up by fees and all those sort of the actual monopoly capitalists like banks and straight and, you know, swift codes and all yes. the rest of it. But like that ate up your profits that you actually couldn't unless you were wealthy. But now we have access to these tools thanks to the more sort of new generation technological platforms, which is why we shouldn't dismiss technology as being bad for us. And sometimes it does good things, but then we have to actually use it. We have to actually get invested in it. But, but that's this idea that ownership, very literal ownership, but also sort of theoretical ownership of the problem and of your society around you leads to virtuous rather than vicious cycles. But then we've also got to talk about the vicious cycles, which is something that, again, puts us, even if it's not your fault, it is kind of your responsibility back into play. And this is talking, as I was saying a bit earlier, about the people that have access to surplus capital that are actually quite wealthy people that are choosing, instead of investing in owning the things that they want to prosper, in other words, owning local companies, owning local property, you know, like mm. gold local schools, for example. Instead, you're choosing to hedge against the country that you live in by doing things like investing in new generation assets, by investing in things like cryptocurrencies, that's one way to do it, or by, of course, taking your capital offshore, getting opening offshore investment accounts, buying property overseas instead of investing locally. Now, the ch- or, or immigrating, quite literally, right? So trying to spread your, spread your bets by trying to earn dollars and sort of live locally in South Africa. All these things are completely sensible at an individual level. So absolutely no criticism towards that. However, at scale, yes. everybody that has surplus is choosing to invest it outside of the country that they purport to support and want to succeed. What you're doing by hedging in that way is you're essentially betting against your own community. You're betting against your own family like your greater family of the sort of South Africa Inc. project. Wouldn't you, we- say, wouldn't, wouldn't you say just on, a, on, a, on an emotional level, people aren't really betting against the country. They're betting against the government because we've seen yeah. time after time how mismanaged the country is by our politicians. And look, you can argue that politicians all over the world do a terrible job, but ours in particular have not covered themselves in glory. And yes, there are you know people who are trading the rand in a negative way they they're hedging against and 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 essentially shorting south africa inc wherever they can and of course some of those people have made tons of money but the only yeah, reason they can get away with it. <laughs> sorry say that again 
you make you you there are people making money when things get worse and things are getting worse yeah. but uh, there's that this little link that um by making money when things get worse you kind of making things get worse even faster which is a very unfair predicament to find yourself in as an investor well, and as someone who have to protect themselves and their family because what what do you do right my question to you is 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 it the fault of those people who have found a way to turn a bad situation into a good one for them financially is it their fault or is it the fault of the government who haven't yet figured out that if they just manage things properly that it can be a whole lot harder for people to get away with this kind of thing and if the country's on the up and up that you can't really bet against it i mean if we're growing there's no amount of uh, of destructive behavior going on in the financial markets that can stop us from growing i was in the in the in the city of cape town over the weekend and i have to tell you like that's kind of what South Africa could look like if we worked properly. And I know that Cape Town has its problems, but my God, they're nothing like the problems in the rest of the country. And it bothers me that people are, again, using smoke and mirrors, saying, look over here, but don't pay any attention to what we're doing on this side. The only reason people can get away with this stuff is because the people who are meant to be doing a certain job are just not doing it. That's absolutely true. And it's, and it's definitely not our fault or the fault of people that are making smart very smart, very sensible financial decisions. Nonetheless, the more capital that escapes this country, the, the faster all our decline comes. Now, there's another argument to be had as to whether we want to accelerate decline, where you get to a point where you have to hit rock bottom and end up with like an Argentinian sort of, you know, wild card surprise instead of a continuation as business as usual. But again, these are these are sort of really deep arguments around whether whether you're supporting sort of team accelerationism or team sort of rebuilding uh, going forward and what sort of strategy you want for going forward. Just go, I've, I got, I've got to push back against that too. The, the reason that this melee got, guy got in is because people in that country are sick to death of being predated upon by the, by the financial services industry. And the reason that they have a banking crisis and the reason that so many countries in South America are such a disaster financially is because they keep on doing the socialism thing. And this guy has said no more of that. So before we call him an asshole and an idiot and a fool, and he may be any of those things, we don't know, the jury's still out, he's just got in. And all he's done is cut excess fat from the budget. And all he's done is clean up. So let's give him a chance to, to at least prove that he's a complete idiot before we call him that. Well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm certainly not calling him that at all. I, I think that the, the, it's a sort of a sentiment that you have to get to that point before people are prepared to vote in a different direction. As you said, South America has been on like a socialist trajectory for a very long time, much like us. Like we, we, we keep on voting for the same sort of thing. And then we can't expect a, a different result. You only want to get a different result if you try something incredibly different. And he's pulled the pendulum like way to the other side. So it's going to obviously there's going to be fallout and there's going to be some sort of middling out there. And if he's able to survive another sort of round yeah. in a very volatile South American politics cycle is absolutely up for up for debate. He is a crazy character, though. He is incredibly extreme, and I think we do need to note that. But he's extreme, and he's had this opportunity only because things have got so extremely bad. That's why I would Correct. say that he's a symptom of what happens when accelerationism kind of does work, right? Where things get to such a point that people just simply cannot do the same thing anymore. They have to at least try something else, right? So I absolutely not a not a critic of of the person. I think he's quite interesting. I mean, he's he's a he's a character character and a half, but he's certainly not business as usual. He's certainly not no. just. It, it's certainly a signal of a, of a very different sort of shift in what's happening in politics. I'm not sure we're there yet in South Africa. I, I don't think that we're that we're collectively as a country quite at that mindset of wanting to try something quite so radical as that. But I've also sort of spoken and written quite a lot about how South Africans are actually very conservative in our choices and we're very patient, mm -hmm. you know, like we just do the same thing over and over again. We kind of, we, 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 we optimists as much as we complain a lot. South Africans are by revealed preference, sort of Pollyanna-ish kind of optimists. In Traditionalist that, you know, and conservative yet yeah. optimistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like we, we, so we kind of do believe doing the same thing will get us a different result uh, based on our behavior, not based on what we say. I mean, how much can we actually look forward to this year? Because I think, you know, there's, there's probably an opportunity for change in this country. There's probably, uh, there are enough people, um, even if it's a minority at this stage, uh, to, to swing things in a direction where we're just, we've had enough of the old and we need to change gear. It's like 30 years of the, of the ANC being in charge and, most people's lives have not got better, despite all their propaganda to the alternative to the to the 
the, the, the other side of the argument. I don't know whether politics is the only thing we need to look at. I'm glad you started with economics because I do think that that affects people on a far more direct basis than anything that politicians do or say. And there's so many people in this country who've just stopped caring. The rich who don't care what the politicians do. They live in these enclaves. They have their own water, electricity. They, uh, they don't have to worry about it. You know, they're not, they're they not like those classes who are 100% invested in your bond here that you've got you've to make it work. You know, and the, the, my point. And the extremely poor people who have just got no connection with government because the municipality or the or the the the, the, the region that they live in has administratively fallen apart, and they just they live in an actual anarchy. So somewhere in the middle are the only people who are affected, and I think those middle class, if you can even call them that anymore, because they've been so hollowed out, the middle class South Africans are just saying enough. We've had it up to here. We cannot be stretched anymore. And those are the people who will bring about the change, don't you think? Well, not necessarily at the polls, because that middle classes that you talk about there that are essentially, as I call them, kind of like the taxpaying classes or the codependent classes, they're actually quite small in terms of the general electorate across our society, right? We've got a lot more people who are dependent on the state one way or another. However, like from the economic perspective, then yes, there are things that those classes do have power on because those same classes are the taxpaying classes. The really wealthy and the really poor don't pay too much tax in, in terms of like a, in terms of a percentage of their income, right? It's the middle classes that really sort of hold that together. We can get into debates about that, but I, I want to sort of sidestep that point and talk and talk more about how when, you, when you've got these sort of middle classes that can't necessarily influence elections at the polls, because quite simply they don't have the sort of mass numbers that we need in the sort of flawed democracy that we have, those classes mm -hmm. can make a difference by doing things like the tax revolts, which I think are really, really interesting. Another example of sort of piracy going on around the place. And one of the most interesting conversations that I had last year was with the leaders of the KZN tax revolts, the sort of community group that just collectively decided government service delivery was not happening so they were going to start paying their rates and taxes into a private account and they were going to prepare to challenge huh. this at a constitutional court level these are the sorts of actual action steps that an organized society or community movements can take to say enough is enough and the thing with economics as opposed to politics politics in our very flawed democracy you kind of get one vote every four years whereas when it comes to economic choices that you make whether it's through ownership whether it's through hedging whether it's through offshoring or shorting or longing whatever sort of perspective or paying or not paying your taxes these sorts of things are choices that you get to make every single day and they do compound and that's the the one sort of source of power that individual citizens in this country still have in that there are so few taxpayers and they literally are sort of paying the whole sort of zombie system to stay alive in our economy when those sorts of groups start to organize you can have very powerful movements and i've always sort of seen south africa as being kind of a global leader in terms of signals of change and new ways of challenging the status quo at a global level, the sort of Washington, weird yep. Western consensus. And I'm, I'm very excited about the sort of actual tax revolts that are organizing very formally, very politely, not like having protests in the street like the Arab Spring, you know, not, not put, putting on pink fuzzy hats to complain about me too, but actually doing something about it, right? So not, not like complaining, but doing, right? Making so and doing it, doing it graciously and, and responsibly. And I'd love to see more of those movements. I think that those are things that can make real change and foster than we might think. Another example on as a sort of a side there that actually did result in real change would be the likes of the Canadian truckers strike, which was more than just an active, active strike. It was an act of piracy once again, where it sort of shut down the roads in response to sort of over-restrictive COVID policies. But they actually changed policies and they changed policies beyond just the, the COVID era policies, right? And in very sort of repressive, regressive Canada, which we can talk about separately. Canada is also an interesting one from a very different perspective. But organized mm. citizen movements where you're doing things rather than just complaining about things is, is I think, a, a more positive trend to look towards uh, because we're absolutely not going to solve this through politics because a lot of our problems with politics, we do speak about in the book, are to do with how our constitution is actually and how our democracy is actually structured, right? It's very difficult to, to, to dismantle a zombie system by changing the players. And again, the Argentinian guy, he he had a very good point there that that like you can't you can't fix the problem with the by changing the shape if the recipe's the problem, right? And we've got a we've got a flawed recipe in terms of oh, what about 
I mean, you, you, you raise the tax revolt thing, which has really been on the cards in South Africa for a long time. That's why the government is terrified to raise taxes at all, because it'll, it'll become a much more widespread phenomenon. Um, and I think, you know, this is where ordinary people, it doesn't matter if you're not the majority, because as I've said ad infinitum on the show, and I was hoping to start the new year with, <laughs> with new things to say, but a lot of the things that we've been saying over and over again is you don't need a, ma a majority of people to make things happen. The French Revolution wasn't started by a majority of people. Neither was the Chinese Revolution. Neither was the American Revolution. It was a few people who decided they'd had enough. And it's amazing how much change can be brought about by those people. I loved what you said about South Africa leading the way in so many, uh, so many social trends and so many massive political trends all over the world. I read an interesting quote. I think it was Napoleon Bonaparte, although he gets ascribed quotes that were not his. He said, war is when the government tells you who the enemy is. Revolution is when you figure it out for yourself. And I think we're getting to that point here in this country too. Yeah. I mean, we've been getting to this point for a lot of things for a long time in terms of like solving our problems for ourselves, mm. whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, or whether it's security, whatever the case is. <laughs> You know, yeah, electricity. I mean, what what does it now? Like something like sixteen percent of our daily energy production is now coming from like homegrown solar panels on roofs. I mean, that's a that's also quite a significant sort of percentage of showing that we can do things, but we're kind of doing the wrong things. We're still kind of messing around with solving the symptoms rather than addressing the actual cause. And a lot of the, the cause of our problem is our politicians. But at the same time, you can complain about it all as much as you like, and it's not going to change unless you do something about it, right? If unless you use the the the, the few of levers of power that we do have and what the private sector has by definition is levers of economic power right so that's that's what you've mm -hmm. got to sort of lean it love it okay uh, any last thoughts that you want to give us teasers for the book because i think people should go and buy the book if they're interested in some of the stuff that we've covered and we haven't even scratched the surface really so um what is the other stuff that you think people would like to read about in detail that you've only just given us a glimpse of I mean, there's more sort of practical stuff. I think I sort of touched on it a bit earlier with my sort of somewhat ranting around copyrights and patents. I think there's a chapter in there on Georgism, one of the few non-South African guests that are, that was interviewed for, for this project. I think these sorts of radical economic ideas are ideas that should be spoken about more, that should be argued about. You don't necessarily have to agree with me. I'm certainly not in the business of trying to be agreed with, but I am in the business of trying to start new conversations and to give ideas seemed impossible a bit of airtime but some of the good ideas that seemed impossible prior a bit of airtime there's an awful lot of bad ideas that seemed impossible until recently that are now being taken seriously things like universal basic income i mean i could do a whole i can do a whole many hour sort of discourse on why these sorts of ideas are quite dangerous but other much better ideas that have been lying around that could hopefully be be run with by people implementing them in their own lives or even to, if you are listening to this and you're interested in getting into politics i think there's a few ideas for or mandates for future politicians that uh, people can pick up those banners and, and run with going into the future. Things that are actual tangible policies that can make can make a, a, a very significant difference in quite a short amount of time without having to go uh, full all at once. No, I love it. Uh, this is all terrific and it uh, probably is the best way for us to start the new year. So thank you for being on the show, Bronwyn. And uh, it's always great to chat to you. Check out the book that Bronwyn has just written with her co-author and it's available in good bookstores right now is that the is that the scripted ad or can you add to it where, where can we get this can we get it online as well yeah you can get it online you can get it anywhere i mean always as always like going back to the point that i was making about invest in more of what you want to get so if you're going to be buying books kind of decide who you're going to be supporting do you want to support local booksellers or do you want to support multinational sort of tech platforms when you're getting these things they're all available everywhere but we get more of the ones that we actually do buy from right especially now that we have more choices i love it okay everybody so we're off to a roaring start for 2024 i hope the year is going to be amazing for you bronwyn and for you leanne and we will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m bright and early for our first tuesday show of the year and you're still allowed according to leanne to say happy new year for at least another week new and then you've got it yes all right good <laughs> all right everybody we'll see you tomorrow cheers have a good day bye-bye